Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hola a todos, soy Tayo, I'm your host, and it's another day to change the world. Today's guest is Kelly Nichols, and she grew up traveling and living in boats on the South Pacific Islands until she was eight, and then she ventured into different parts of Latin America before working with Medcenso Frontier and publishing her international thriller, A Reluctant Warrior. Now, I particularly enjoyed this conversation because we got to dive into what it was like to actually be someone to travel at such a young age, how to deal with reverse culture shock, how to connect across cultures, how to find out what's unique about yourself and then attach that to a vehicle that can make an impact. And then obviously, she gave us some insight into what Colombia is like, you know, not the stereotypical Pablo Escobar stuff that you always hear, what the true Colombia is like. So you're in for an experience and also... You're in for a moment that could inspire your curiosity. That's my favorite type of thing. When your curiosity is inspired to actually go out and venture into the world so you can explore it. But before we get into the episode, I want to make a little PSA. Black Panther just came out. I saw it three times. Um, I wrote it. I wrote a blog post on it. It's on tyroxin.com slash blog. But I really, really want you all to see this movie. And not just because as a Nigerian, it means so much to me because, it, you know, it talks about the continent and, um, you know, African diaspora. But I think there are a lot of, of tropes that you can get from this movie, a lot of leadership qualities, a lot of change maker qualities that you can learn about. And I think it's going to cause you to think. So check out Black Panther and check out this episode. In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross-cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads and today's episode is with Kelly Nichols. She grew up traveling and she lived on a boat in the South Pacific Islands until she was eight. So it is in her blood. She's lived and worked all over the world and she has a special affinity for Latin America where she spent six years living, volunteering and later working. This experience led her to do what she does today, working for international humanitarian organizations, Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders. Uh, many of you know that. And that has her traveling all over the world. She's also just published a novel set in Colombia, 
and she is going to be able to talk to us about her unique perspectives on how to travel, how to work, how to make a difference, and include practical tips on how to combine all those three things. I'm really, really excited to have you on the show, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm stoked to be here. <laughs> no, the pleasure is mine. And so you have such a fascinating background. I mean, let's let's start off with uh, those first eight years of your life where you were living on a boat. Yeah, I, I just think it's so cool for kids to grow up traveling because you grow up not thinking that, you know, your little tiny neighborhood or whatever is the world. You grow up like inside of different cultures. Like I grew up with people who looked, sounded, acted differently for me from like uh, you know the word go and um and so to me I've always been fascinated in other cultures because because that was my normal until I was eight I actually su- kind of suffered I don't know if you'd call it I don't know um not uh I suppose it's what racism would feel like but being um but in my own in my own country when I got back because I was so different even though right, I look like right. everyone else I look so different and so um, and so people would like, you know, say, oh, you made up those stories of living on a boat. You made up those stories of your friends being eaten by a shark and no one wanted to hang out with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you're referring to reverse culture shock. Yeah, 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 totally. Wow, wow. That's crazy. So, so what was the reason why your, you know, your parents took you all over the world with a boat? Well, my, my parents, both of them are, are, are dream chasers. They've actually got a book coming out um, next year. Um, and my dad's favorite quote poem is that one about dreamers of the day and um, they kind of live it. So my dad was from, is from England and just loved boats and um, so he, he wanted to fulfill the dream. So he built the boat himself um, uh, with my mum's help and then they just created a business out of it. So they took people on these adventure holidays, like incredible cultural adventure holidays all throughout the Pacific, so Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea. Oh. Um, they did dive holidays in the New Caledonia, et cetera, et cetera. Incredible. That is, that's incredible. That's incredible. So um, you touched on it there a little bit. Obviously, when you experience reverse culture shock, you know this happens to a lot of people that listen to the show. Uh, they travel and they identify with several cultures. I It happened to me when I, you know, sometimes people tell me I'm not Nigerian enough or something like that uh, mm. because, you know, I'm not the perception of that. How did you deal with you know, dealing with the identity issues of people in your country telling you that we don't believe. Well, I was, I was an eight-year-old, so I've also suffered it like later on as a teenager, which was very different. But I think it's it um, it affects you a lot when you're a kid because the thing that you most want as a child is to fit in, right? Mm. And and I was an eight-year-old who who started school and was just like so different from everyone else. And I suppose that's also one of the reasons I ended up getting into like human rights, humanitarian affairs, because I've always like, I've always, I suppose, had a lot of compassion for what it feels like to be different and to be, to be, you know, I don't know, persecuted is not right, the right word. Bullying is the word for me. And then obviously I work with people who are persecuted, but, um, you know, being bullied for being different, even though from an outsider's point of view looking in I wouldn't have looked at all different but I had such a different childhood that I acted different from everybody else I used to speak boat speak <laughs> like <laughs> instead of saying right and left I used to say like starboard and port 
<laughs> oh and I, it's, it's a true story. A friend, like my first childhood friend when I was five, because I had all adult friends. But then this boat, my parents became friends with a um, with a sailor who had a son. But he ended up he was eaten by a shark. And, um, and yeah, seriously. And so I would tell that story about a friend because obviously it was really impactful for me about my friend who was eaten by a shark. I was not there or anything. Um, and everyone was, you know, like, you're so full of it. <laughs> my goodness. I mean, rest in peace. I'm just, that's just devastating. No, wow. <laughs> so, okay. So then you had that initial career. Can you talk about how travel then led you down the path of volunteering um, into a 17-year career in human rights and humanitarian affairs? Because you, you alluded to it earlier, but I want to know what about travel led you to that volunteering path? Yeah, well, I think those those young years. So, I mean, if any of your listeners have um, kids, then I would highly recommend, you know, traveling a, a, as much outside of the um, the normal kind of places, you know, like letting your kids have um really cultural, like deep, rich cultural experience. But anyway, I think um, for me it was ingrained at such a young age to, to kind of appreciate, um, be drawn to different cultures, to have a lot of compassion for uh, people who are picked on because they're seemingly different in some way. And then so I always, from a young age, started volunteering. And I started out as a journalist, um, but I was always, always volunteering on the side. And then... In Australia, um, in, when I was 23, there was um, the Bali bombings, which I suppose to Australia, I mean, it's it was nowhere like um, the it was it was very impactful from us from a terrorist point of view. Lots of people killed, and um, anyway, as a journalist, I was just being asked these such terrible things, like go, you know, like go find stories uh, the the editor was very happy with the emotion of of people's response and I just hated that and I was like I don't want to be part of the problem I I want to be part of you know I want to help people um I don't want to be asking people to tell me stories about the children they've lost I want to be help, helping them um and so I literally at 23 went okay I'm going and I dropped a really really good um job well seemingly good job in the media and I just went as by myself and um, volunteered in Latin America for a year my parents thought I was completely nuts 23 year old girl going by herself to Latin America um, but it was just totally life-changing because I um, I started off in Mexico I worked with Mexican communities there in, um, indigenous communities and then I lived in the Amazon with indigenous communities in the no. Amazon no. in the Ecuadorian Amazon for six months um, again, by myself. What? And they, they just totally moved me. And, um, yeah, I just was like, well, there's clearly nothing else that I want to do. Like this feeling where you can deeply connect with someone and well, not just someone, like a community, and you can feel like your support, you're giving back to them. But at the same time, like I, I always think giving back, especially that kind of grassroots giving back you end up learning so much more than you give you're there to give but you learn and grow so much more um so that was it for me and i've and from that age on i came back when i was 24 i've been um i've been doing this work ever since wow no that's that's incredible and i, I kept saying no throughout that because your life literally sounds like a movie from from birth you know the first eight years <laughs> the first eight years could be a movie in and of itself and then from you know, high school onwards could be another movie and it's just, just a series of experiences. And 
I'm geeking out here because there are so many things with you that we can unpack. You know, we can talk about education. You can talk about love to fat for travel. We can talk about volunteering. Um, but what I really, really want to talk about is this idea of making an impact. You know, I, you know, why I do what I do with my podcast, with my consultant speaking and anything, it's to remind people that they have the ability to make an impact. I always say, use your difference to make a difference. And I love that line. I really, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I totally want to speak on his podcast. That is such a cool line. I just oh, love that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's, uh, yes, that's so humbling. I'm so humbled to hear that. But I, I think you, you resonate with that though. You, you think all of us, no matter our education and profession, has the ability to make a difference in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I like your line so much because I think it's each of us has a, I mean, we can all make a difference, but also each of us has unique passions, unique life experiences, um, unique skills. And if we can find how to use those to make a real difference to others, that to me is your path. That's your bliss. Like bliss is is doing what you're meant to do. And to me, if it doesn't include an element of like really feeling like you're giving back, it, I don't know, to me it's like you're not quite there yet. It doesn't matter how much money you're making or, you know, how much amazing experience it is. I just feel like that giving back contribution, connection side of it is just, um, yeah, it's so, so important for, for human beings. I think it's what we're here for. Wow. Wow. And it, can you talk about how you discovered your difference? I usually ask that at the end of the, of the podcast, and I'm still going to ask you um, how you <laughs> use difference at the end of the podcast, but I'm curious as to how you figured out and tied your passion to impact in the world. Yeah. So again, it, it's interesting. It comes back from my part um, from from growing up. So I've done a lot of work um, with Indigenous and with minority communities. And so, like I said, I grew up in um, like you know with all these different cultures. And then when I went to school when I was eight, even though I looked physically like everyone else, I was seen as kind of a minority and bullied and so forth. And then so I've always been drawn to different minority um, communities. And so I ended up doing work, starting off with a lot of work with Indigenous tribes. And then I got into working, um, when I went to Colombia, I was really drawn to the Afro-Colombian uh, um, communities and I did lots of work with them. I got, I ended up, um, I got work with the UN independent expert on minority rights. So I've done a lot of work um, with minority minority groups, and I think it's that definitely goes back from to to childhood and to really um, loving different cultures, but at the same time having compassion and really caring about um, groups that discrimination basically, um, yeah, and all sorts of discrimination like outward obvious discrimination, but also like structural discrimination, you know, like. Uh, minority groups that um, that uh, that in Colombia are disproportionately affected by the war, or that um, uh, their their unemployment rates are through the roof, incarceration rates are through the roof, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that's fascinating. You say that, and it's funny because I've always been a minority everywhere I've gone. I, I, I always say that. You know, I, I love wearing that as a badge of honor, and I call. I actually use that as a call to action for everyone if they want to build their emotional intelligence and their cultural intelligence to, um, un I don't know, I wouldn't say positively, positively, yes, but to make sure they do it on purpose. Put yourself in a situation where you are the minority and try and absorb 
things and see the perspectives in a different way that they reach decisions because that would give you a whole different idea on what it's like to actually live in in the global world that we we claim to live in um, mm-hmm. yeah and 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 with with your story afro it's just the the, the afro latino group afro latina afro latino group it's it's always an undercover story i know you started in the media but not enough people i find here really understand how what goes on in Latin America is very different for the different ethnic groups. And I kind of want you to shine the light on that because a lot of times we hear about the, the disproportional behavior in, you know, some parts in, in Western and the Western world, but we forget that there's a whole other region where, you know, they feel the effects of colonialism. I mean, they feel the effects of war and they feel the effects of, of just everyday society. And yet that's underreported. So can you please educate us? I mean, that's, that's one of the huge reasons I wrote my book because of that. Um, yeah, no, totally. Like I, and it, probably in America, people know a lot more. Um, but in Australia, where I live, people really don't know. Like they're like Afro-Colombians. What? Um, so basically, I mean, as I think your, your listeners would be well aware of, um, Colombia has the third highest, um, African diaspora population in the world. Um, after, so America is obviously number one, and then Brazil, then Colombia. Um, and it's a beautiful, rich culture that really is, um, combines, is still very connected to the roots of, um, their African heritage, but then, you know, that ingrained with the Latin culture. But from the word go, they've been, um, persecuted, obviously, historically persecuted, um, slaves, as slaves, but also, um, they so they've been absolutely disproportionately affected by the war so afro-colombians tend to live on because of you know when they escaped from um from slave masters and so forth they they tended to populate either the pacific coast the atlantic coast or the the rivers in colombia and those ended up being um highly sought after by illegally armed groups um for two reasons one reason is because they're on the coast and 90% of drugs in Colombia are moved by water um, or they're in the riverways. Or number two, because their land, because it's near the water, is so um, uh, good for crops that it's sort of by the illegally armed groups for, um, you know, co- coca cultivation. And at the same time, it's also sort of sought after by big business who want to, um, uh, you know, set up legal um uh, cultivations like palm oil or so forth. And so land rights is a huge issue because Afro-Colombians have very, just like indigenous communities I've worked with, um, their connection to the land is very, very deep. It's it's like just inherent. It's ingrained in, in them and who they are and who they are as a community. They've also, um, they, they don't live kind of individualistically as, as people do. I, I won't speak for you, but in my culture in Australia, it's it's everything's a community. Um, so you bring up children in community. Um, everything is done in community. And so then for them being displaced, it takes that it takes away that connection to the land, and it takes away that community. Um, they've also um, suffered from what I call like structural racism. So where uh, the unemployment rate for um, unem- for Afro Colombians is way higher. Uh, there's a lot of racism as far as like getting housing in major cities. 
Um, there's a, a very little number of Afro-Colombians in, in leadership positions, uh, including in the Congress. Um, I could go on and on. But, I mean, at some stage, if you want, I could tell you about Buenaventura, where my novel is set, which to me just perfect is a perfect example of um, of kind of like, like what the Afro-Colombians uh, suffer, but also at the same time of their incredible resilience and um, bravery. No, yeah, let's go. First of all, thank you for that. Thank you for that education. That's really uh, informative. And let's go into the book. Uh, we'll talk to Kelly, Nichol, uh, to Kelly Nichols. I said Nichols. Kelly Nichols here. <laughs> she is the author of a book called A Reluctant Warrior, which is, I believe, set in Colombia. And uh, can you give us a little insight as to why and what the book is about? Yeah, well, I'll start off just like by describing um, Buenaventura. It's set in Buenaventura. And I first went to Buenaventura in 2007. And at that stage, it was one of the most dangerous cities in Colombia. So for any of you readers that don't know, Colombia was in a 42-year war um, by leftist guerrillas and right-wing paramilitaries. Uh, and it started with some kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, the leftists wanted land rights and so forth and the rights, the right paramilitaries were fighting for big business. But as far as I'm concerned, the vast majority of the war was all about um, money and it was completely fueled by the drug trade. So Colombia produces 70% of the world's cocaine um, and so and that had just fueled the war. So um, Buenaventura is the major port city in the, in the country. So um, it, it was like a hotbed for, for the cocaine um, business because a lot of a lot of cocaine was moved on ships and so forth. It was also a hotbed for, like, these illegally armed groups. So when I was first there in 2007, I was a human rights researcher and I was going to write a report about it. And, um, you know, I was nervous going in because, because it, it had such a reputation. And so I got there and when you first go in, it's bustling. You know, it's typical Colombia. You have reggaeton music blasting from one side, salsa, champeta, like all this music competing, people talking loudly. Um, it's just a buzz. And then I met my, I met the groups that were going to be taking me around. It was actually a group of really young um, human rights activists, Afro-Colombian human rights activists. And I went with them and we got out of the city. And as soon as you got out of the city, things change. And the first thing that I noticed was the smell. And 80% of Buenaventura doesn't even have running water or, um, or sewerage. And so you smell that, that smell from the lack of, uh, from not having sewerage. And it's, it hits you straight away. And, and the poverty, you, the further you get away from the city into the towns, um, the little like neighborhoods where the people live. And this place is 95% Afro-Colombian. Um, you see the poverty. So the houses go from being brick to just being literally people would grab wood and like hammer them together. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Themselves. And it's very slapstick. Some of them don't have proper roofs. Some of them use like plastic to um, to cover windows. There's holes in them there um, because it's it's on the water. They're um, they're over this like sewage laden water. At the same time, the people you know are beautiful, and the, there's still music, and there's still this like rich culture. But then you kind of notice the the feeling of um, of danger. So. On the on the corner of of the streets, when you get really into the neighbourhood, there was there was these groups of young men, probably like only about sixteen, and they'd be playing dominoes. They call them the dominoes club. But what they're really doing is they're paid by either the paramilitaries or the guerrilla to guard the neighbourhoods and watch who goes in or out. And you can tell it because wow. they're not really playing; they're just watching you as you go in. And at this stage, we were in like the kind of the really fought over neighborhoods. And basically, when I was there, you would have one neighborhood belong to the paramilitaries, one neighborhood belong to the guerrillas. And one of these kids I was with, and I call him a kid because he was really, I think he was about 16, 17. And he said to me that this street, it's crazy. They're called like Manhattan and San Francisco. They name everything after the U.S. there. And, and he said, Manhattan is a no-go zone. If you cross that, you're in big trouble. And so I asked him to tell me about it. And so he told me through a story of this one um, teenager who was about 19 or something, and he'd left when he was young, about 15, went to work in a big city and came back uh, several years later, and these demarcation zones had changed. He crossed the wrong street, and he was taken by the group, the paramilitaries, and he was tortured and killed because he thought he was spying for the opposite group. Oh, and that's all. That's the life these people live. And they were telling me, you know, about down these streets, they, one of them pointed down one to a street called Piedras Cantan and he was like, down there is where one of these torch homes um, are. And that's, I mean, these things really exist. It's not that I was told. I mean, top human rights organizations have, have written about them. So that's a kind of reality in Buenaventura. You have this... Um, you know, like this incredible level of violence there that people live in. And it's the, the kids that really got me because these kids that I was going, teenagers that I was going around with, they were saying to me, we don't want to be part of this war and we will fight against it even though we know how dangerous it is. And it's incredibly dangerous for people there to stand up to the violence. Um, lots of people are killed, disappeared, etc. But they were so brave and they were willing to do that because they wanted something more for their, not just their family, but for their whole entire community. And they blew me away. Like I was just so moved from the word go the very first time I went to Buenaventura that I really fell in love with the place. I mean, the place not so much because obviously there's, um, you know, a ton of poverty and a ton of violence, but the people, the people just, I absolutely fell in love with them because, because of that bravery and, and, and the ability to not lose their their love of life and their passion despite, like, all the stuff that they were living in. Um, and so I went back there a lot. I wrote a lot of reports about it. I did a lot of advocacy about the situation. And that's what really inspired me to write my book. I was like, I, don't, I think that in general people just, 
you know, they just know the very superficial about Colombia. They just know that it's the, you know, Pablo Escobar, the hotbed of drugs. And maybe if they're educated, they know that there was a long war. And that's probably about it. Um, and so I really wanted people to understand and feel it and feel it through characters, um, what, it, what it's like for people, especially Afro-Colombians um, in, in Colombia. And, and both from a point of view of shining a light on the, um, on the real impact of the war and uh, on the drug wars and, um, and of drugs in general, but then, on the other hand, also celebrating these incredibly, incredibly brave people who risk everything, and like I said, many of them have been killed, to stand up for what they believe in, um, like to be real change makers. And, um, yeah, that was why I wrote the book. And the book is its fiction. The story is fictitious, but all of it is based you know, on truth. So everything you read about is um really kind of like all the neighborhoods, uh, the groups, everything is, is, is real. Um, and so, yeah, like I'm really pleased when people tell me, wow, I read your book and I had no idea this kind of thing happens. And I was reading it thinking, oh, this can't really happen. And then at the end it says how all these facts. And I was like, oh, my God. And that makes me so happy because that's what I want. Well, I mean, you're, you're an amazing human being. So thank you for doing that. And uh, before I even continue my questions, I'm curious about the title. Why did you call it? A reluctant warrior. Mm, good question. Um, so the main character, her name's Luzma, and um, she she's based on many women I I um, met when I was there. She's not just based on one person, but her story is that her mother was a human rights defender, and she was taken by the paramilitaries and disappeared. This happens a lot. I worked with a lot of communities in Colombia. Um, where their family members are just disappeared and then they never know what happened to them. It, to me, it's the most hideous thing because there's absolutely no end because um, they're always looking. And that's the situation she has been in when the story starts. And the story starts with the paramilitaries taking over her community and she's forced to flee with her younger brother who she looks after and her grandparents. And then they happen when the daughter and um, her mother who's only 12 kind of innocently gets mixed up with the paramilitaries and this happens all the time um child recruitment like recruitment of child soldiers is so so common in colombia and most common in buenaventura so they use them for things like spying and so forth and, and we're talking young kids like 12 and before they know it they're given a gun and they're killing people it's very very sad wow. um and anyway so this happens to her brother and then in the end he's um He's kidnapped, and so, so she didn't. the The word or the phrase "a reluctant warrior." She didn't set out. It's not like me. I decided to be a human rights defender. I studied. I did got my masters. La la. la. I, I made a very conscious choice. Um, Luzma and many many of the people I met in Colombia, they didn't choose this path. It chose them, and and she just said, "No, I'm. I will not put up with this." Well, for one, she said, I'll, I'll risk everything. I'll do anything to save my brother. Um, and, and she becomes, you know, this incredibly brave, valiant human rights defender, not just that, like a warrior who takes on the, um, the paramilitaries despite the fact that they have everything. They have all the arms, all the violence, and she's just, you know, one woman. Um, and, and so, yeah, a reluctant warrior. That's, that's so beautiful. And, 
the word warrior means so much to me. I'm, I'm Nigerian. I'm from the Yoruba tribe. My, my name, Akintayo, mm. Taya for short, means a warrior as brother's joy. So I've always had the affinity for that. So every, every time I see something with warrior, I'm like, I want to know the story behind that. Uh, so uh, <laughs> the story behind that is definitely I, true. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And I also, like in Colombia, people associate warrior too much with, you know, the armed warrior. I also wanted another reason, like for the reluctant warrior to show that she's she's a warrior without without an arm because you don't need it. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, no, that's warrior. I always say um, I always do something in my hashtags on Instagram. I call it warrior mindset, and uh, that's amazing. I love that. And the other thing that I love about this is my business partner. She's Colombian. She's from Cartagena, and um, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. She's actually getting married uh, this December, and they're going over there. But it, it's it, you're so right when people talk about. Colombia, you know, you only hear Pablo Escobar and, you know, there's that great series on Netflix called Narcos and does a good job of that. But, you know, not a lot of people talk about, you know, the conflict, the Colombian conflict. I mean, some would argue it still goes on. Some might say it ended. But, you know, the the, the reasons, if it's much like with Syria and all that, there's so many reasons where some people, you know, claim to be fighting for the rights of the poor in Colombia and protecting from the government. Others are protecting social justice, you know. Colombian or trying to uh, Colombian government might be fighting for stability. There's just so many different parties, and I'm <laughs> curious as, as you, you're you're you know, Medicine Sans Frontier, um, Doctors Without Borders. When you go into these environments where the conflict is not clear, you know who I don't know who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. How do you deal with you with your um, your morality? As <laughs> when you're thinking that, how do you do? You go just go in there like I'm just going to save anyone and anywhere. It doesn't matter. Or do you go in there and say I'm just going to go to this region. I'm going to focus on these people. Yeah. So I have to answer that question in two parts. So first of all, because when I was working in Colombia, I wasn't working for uh, Doctors Without Borders. So I can say first of all, um, for Doctors Without Border in general, they're completely neutral. So they will go into any country. Mm. And they will, um, you know, they will talk to all sides. They won't ask anyone uh, as far as, you know, providing care at which group are you from. They will provide care to whoever needs it, regardless of, uh, of race, of ethnicity, of politics, etc. Um, and it's because of that that they're able to get access, you know, the without borders part to places that, that many other actors um, can't get access because they are truly neutral, um, which is very, very complicated to be uh, challenging, of course. Um, but that's that enables them to help people in places that many, many people um, can't get access to. Uh, so it's like a, the probably the core tenet of, of Doctors uh, for Borders work is is that neutrality and that, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's independence is very, very important. Uh, so for me in Colombia, I was working, I was actually working when I was there with a local human rights organization. Um, and, and so I was interviewing, I was working with displaced communities, uh, all, and specifically with Afro-Colombian displaced communities. <clears throat> so I was interviewing, I interviewed hundreds, thousands of, of displaced people, um, and that's people displaced by the guerrilla, by the paramilitaries, sometimes by the government, um, etc. And working with them for the book, I also um, and and in that work, I came across both sides. I came across the paramilitaries, I came across the guerrilla, 
Um, I also, for the book, did some further interviewing with some paramilitary leaders, drug bosses, um, just to, you know, to get more information for the book so I could make those characters the most kind of honest as possible. Mm. No. And no, thank you for that. This book reads, first of all, like like a a history lesson, a cultural lesson, and also a, a... thriller <laughs> this 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 um taking a, a journey through this protagonist character who's the reluctant warrior as you say and she's really navigating through very tough terrain and reminding us of our humanity i think a lot of times the many people in the world that forget about the outside world and and what other people go through and i love books like yours because it really just not only transports us but allows us to tap into our emotions and and really put ourselves in that position and, and ask ourselves, what would we do if we were there? You know, if we were fighting against a system yes, that's against exactly. us. Yeah, and, and uh, physically that's against exactly us. It. Oh. And that's what I wanted, right? And yeah. I think that because I've written, I've also written a nonfiction in Spanish, a, a book about the impact of the war on minority people. But to be honest, I reckon probably about 20 people read it. Um, and with this book, I wanted it to be read by people who had no idea and who just liked a, uh, you know, a good thriller. Um, but I, what you said then, I think that through stories, we, we can make people care because through stories, they let down their guard. They're just engaged in, in like, you know, a really page turning thriller. But then they start to be like, wow, what if I was that? Exactly like you said, what if I was that person? And once people do that, you've got them. Like then they can really feel and understand uh, how the impact for other people. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the gateway to to empathy and, and emotional intelligence, really understanding how our emotions, how we react to certain things, and then understanding the emotions of people around us. Uh, we live in the most globalized time ever, and you know the world is becoming flatter through commerce and internet. But the most ironic thing with that, with that connection is that many people still don't know how to listen, still don't know how to see things from a different perspective. And it's a lot of my way versus your way or ethnocentrism. And so the more you can sort of normalize these experiences and sort of really explain how someone can get to a point based on their background, I think that does a a whole lot of people for a generation of leaders. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, I'm very curious about the process of writing the book, but I, I want to make sure I correct myself. I know I said, so the war, even though some argue might still go on, it technically ended, right? The, in 2016, I think there was a ceasefire. I just want to make sure I have the timeline, right? Was there a ceasefire? Yeah, so in November 2016, they signed the peace agreement. Um, and yeah, so the war is officially over. The conflict, as far as I'm concerned, is not completely over. The, yeah. I think the cities are pretty safe, um, but, uh, but, I mean, human rights defenders continue to be killed. Um, there is, it, Colombia still produces um, a, a lot of the world's cocaine and where there is a legal substance, you're going to have conflict, you know. It's not like the Pablo Escobar days where you have these huge cartels that manage everything. Now it's decentralised and what you have is you have these illegally armed groups um, that, that sell to the, the Central Americans who sell to the Mexicans, but there's still, you know, this coca cultivation is still huge in, gotcha. in Colombia. Yeah. Yeah. All right. No, but uh, also, okay, so we've talked a lot about that conflict because we, it needed to be talked about. And it's a lot about what, you, you know, it's a lot about what you talk about in your book and it's what you did a lot of research on. 
What about the uh, mm. uh, the? Let's talk about the beautiful aspects of Colombia because Colombia is yes. tremendously <laughs> diverse. Uh, you know, my business partner tells me that all the time. Or you know, she's got family over there, especially her area, Cartagena. She's always talking about how it's it's much more than Medellin. Um, you know, you know, or Bogota. There's so many things in Colombia, uh, and they have a lot of exports. They're in entertainment. Um, and I absolutely adore Colombia. Like, I really think everyone should go there. It's, yeah. And so many people that I've met when I was living there, I met travelers, and they traveled all over Latin America, and it was so, so common that they'd get to Colombia and be like, this is the best. This yeah. is absolutely the best. And I, I think it's for several reasons. But the main reason to me is that the people, like, um, the people are just so warm and kind and it, it's that, like, despite what the country has been through, they have such a joy of life. Um, and, I, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm into dancing. I'm a huge dancer. And the, the music there is incredible and such diversity. It's like that mixed culture in the music. So, of course, you have the salsa and Colombians are incredible salsa dancers but you also have that African influence so you have champeta and curulao um, uh, in, in Buenaventura there's this guy who makes marimbas which are such a beautiful instrument um, yeah. and has been making them for, for decades and decades um, so you really have that kind of African fusion in in the Latin mix and I think that mix is, is incredible and then the food is is delicious especially on the coast because everything's made with coconuts. I love coconuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just the color, like the scenery, you have such diversity in that as well because in the center of the country you can be in these absolutely stunning, wet, mountainous areas um, or you can be on the coast like where your business partner lives uh, is from, sorry, uh, Cartagena, absolutely stunning beaches, um, palm-lined beaches, etc. So it's such a diverse beautiful country so i highly highly recommend people go there and even though i've been talking a lot about the violence and i really do think it's very important as travelers to be educated when you go to a place not just for your own safety but just you know to be an ethical traveler for sure um but um but you can still travel there safely for sure you just have to be aware yeah yeah i mean and even and I think it's it's important to have a balanced argument. Um, you know, I'm I'm from Nigeria. I always recommend people to go to Nigeria, but at the same time, I always talk about some certain things that happen. And Nigeria, mm. a lot of Africa and South America. I want to do a book on this one day. They're very very similar in the sense of how they've um, been. I don't know how they've reacted to post colonialism. Um, you know, where in Latin America it was mainly the Spanish influence, and that in Africa it was a lot of the French. Uh, United Kingdom and then um, Portuguese for some and just understanding the diversity there and how a lot of conflict and how a lot of people dealt with military dictatorship. I grew up in a military dictatorship initially. There's so much similarity even down to the family dynamics and how there's a lot of emphasis on on community. Um, it's fascinating uh, but I have, to, I have to do the research that you did uh, to do that and that's going to probably take me like uh, 10 years to work because I really want to make sure I'm doing that right. But, you know, to, to your point about music, you know, some of the biggest songs this year have, have come from Colombian influences. You know, J Balvin uh, with Mi Gente, uh, one of my favorite mm -hmm. musicians, J Balvin. And I also love Maluma and, and Shakira, everybody knows. But, you know, there, there's, there's an influx of, of, of a lot of good things. Sofia Vegara is from Colombia. Uh, and 
I, you know, I, I want people as they understand and listen to you, Kelly, to, to yes, to be educated on the country that they're going to. But like you did, you know, you were able to take the good and the bad and you're able to have the, the simultaneous perspective of how that bad came about from some systems and celebrate the diversity and youth and vibrance simultaneously. And that takes a lot of, of cultural intelligence to do that. And I, I want you to sort of share those tips to people because you've traveled all your life. You probably developed that as a kid. You grew up on a boat for the first eight years of life. So understanding and relating to people comes more, probably more intuitively to you than it does to others. But how can people who are maybe dabbling into exposing themselves to the world figure out a way to hold those two thoughts simultaneously in the head where they can take the good and bad and not let that color their whole experience? Yeah. I, it's funny. I think I actually read this. And I don't know if I heard it on your podcast or I read it on one of your blogs. Um, maybe it was your TED Talk or something where you talked about how you got really into, I think it was basketball or something. Yeah, basketball, when yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I do as well. Um, when I go to a country, because I don't really, I usually, I, I obviously I travel, but I love to actually like more immerse myself. I love to like find what they're really into and choose something that, you know, I'm, jazzes me and also really like get into that. So with Colombia, because um, I started working with Afro-Colombian communities, I got into Afro-Colombian dance and I studied Afro-Colombian dance. Um, and I think, so for one, like getting into something that the people care about um, and and that can be multiple ways, and that's an entrance, a, a way to to enter into their culture, and also show them that you like value and respect their culture. So it's not just um, if you can, especially if you can learn something that's not just everyone might go there for salsa, but I I, I did like the traditional Afro-Colombian dance, um, and then and I, yeah, so I suppose that's one thing. Um, find a way of of connecting through things that are culturally important to them. Um, uh, and it's also just beautiful and fun. Um, and and learn as much as you can from all sides about about politics, about the background and so forth. So you can have you can have educated conversations. I think Colombians, and I'm sure this is the same, well I'm not sure, I know, because like I've spoken to people in many different countries, what they hate is being um, you know, thought of in, in just black and white, you know, Colombia is a country at war. Colombia is a drug, um, you know, Colombia drugs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like that really annoys Colombia. But when you can mix your appreciation for all the incredible stuff about whatever country you're in, and you can show that through your interests and your knowledge and so forth, then I think that people's barriers are down, and they know that you care about the country, and then they're more willing to be really open about the bad things as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. And what you were talking about is the ability to find your connectors. And it is, you know, mm. with you, obviously, music and dance is a passion of yours. For me, it's, it's sports. And, you know, if I go to a new country, I try to connect on that. I think a lot of people forget that at our core, each of us, there's one common thing, at least, that we can have, even though we might have different values, is that they were human. And then we can start from there. <laughs> and every human has, um, you know, they have a, a, a right to live, a right to express their opinions. And so if you're able to sort of find that connector with your music, maybe with me, sports and, and pop culture, and you fall in love with what it is, their, what is their pop culture? What is their way of sports? 
you find that people open up more because you're doing things in their natural habitat and not making them do things to suit yours. Uh, so that's just a little Absolutely. tip. Yeah. I mean, I remember just a funny little tiny story when I was in India. And again, I, I did a lot of traveling by myself. I was by myself. And, um, and it, yeah, and I, I hate cricket, to be honest with you. But that's really not good to say to you. But I ate it. But I was like, okay, if I'm going to actually get into this culture and be accepted, I better learn some things. So I learned some things like literally overnight about cricket. And I sort of got to change my 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 experience there so much because I started talking about cricket and I learned like who their cricketers were, can't play it, not interested in it, but it didn't matter because it started conversations. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that, that's no, that that yeah. There you go. That's a good story to say to talk about that. Where can people buy your book? Um. So on Amazon, on um. Uh, any like on Google Play, um, Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they could also go to my website, which you let me know at the start of this that isn't working. But hopefully by the time this goes to air, it will be, which is Kelly Brook. So K E L L Y Brook, double O K E Nichols with a double L. So Kelly Brook Nichols.com. Kelly Brook Nichols.com. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Uh, definitely. Mm-hmm want to thank you for coming on the show as a change maker, as an author, as a warrior and a mom, uh, the most important job in the world, being a mom. <laughs> um, thank you. That's no, a pleasure to talk to you. Sorry, hey, you should come down to an event in Australia. I'll rally up a team to come. Oh, please, please. Yes, I want to come to Australia. Australia is on my list. Um, yeah, Australia is on the bucket list for me. I, that's one of the continents I haven't been to. Also, one of the countries I haven't been to. Eh, joke. Uh, but <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Did I tell you I was corny? I'm pretty corny. Um, I've got it. You're American. <laughs> <laughs> All Americans corny. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> no, I, I would love to. I'd love to. What part of Australia are you in? Sydney. Sydney. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely have to. Um, one of my favorite sports in the world is tennis. And one of my goals in life is to do to go to every Grand Slam starting with the Australian Open and do it in the calendar year. So I would love to start off my year in, um, I, guess, I guess, Melbourne. Is, yeah, Melbourne. Yeah, Melbourne is where it is. And then while I'm there, check out the Sydney, Sydney Opera House. Check out Adelaide. Um, you know, Leighton Hewitt lives, was from Adelaide. I love Leighton Hewitt. Pat Rafter was my first favorite tennis player. Um, so just checking things out there and then go out to um, the rest of the world. So I'll definitely let you know. Uh, and... <laughs> When I, when I took it out there. But I can't let you go without asking you this. The mission statement of this podcast is use your difference to make a difference. So how do you, Kelly, use your difference to make a difference? Well, I think, yeah, like we talked about before, it's that um, deep kind of compassion for for people that are being um, persecuted, especially persecuted for their kind of their difference. And I think what I want to do is help help others now who are trying to make a difference and help them find that difference and then um, use all the skills that I've gained over the past 17 years to really um, to amplify that. So how can they be the most strategic, effective, amazing change makers possible? So that's what I'm trying to work on at the moment. Absolutely. Well, thank you once again. One of the, ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking to Kelly Nichols, who is the author of A Reluctant Warrior, it gives you this rare glimpse into a world of drug trafficking. And you got to meet courageous human rights defender. And uh, basically, it's a guide to the Colombian music culture and travel. 
while taking you on a good adventure of self-discovery. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.